Father, thank you so much that you call us to pray. You've told us that it's like fragrant incense, the prayers of the saints as they rise up to the heavenly sanctuary. And I know just now that you've heard our voices, our humble pleas, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And that's not something that can take place through any human being, but only through the power of your word, only through the power of your Holy Spirit. So we invite you to take over, have your way with us this morning, do whatever it takes to draw us closer to Jesus, to give us a deeper love for Jesus, to fill us with the love that this world so desperately needs. I pray this because of Jesus, and in the name of Jesus, amen. It was early, not used to heading out that early in the day. It was Thursday morning of this past week. My father-in-law and I and my brother-in-law got up and out the door of the hotel about 5.30. We were headed to the convention center. We wanted to be there by 6 a.m. This past week, I was at the convention called Pathway to Health in Los Angeles. It was at the Los Angeles Convention Center, and it was offering to the L.A. community services of dental and medical all kinds of uh, eye care, all kinds of things that people in the community needed. And on the first day, the news reporters had been there, and they had reported on the news, and the crowds had come in. Now, I was assigned to be a chaplain, and as a chaplain, I was assigned to the outside part of the chaplaincy group, and we were assigned to mingle with the people in the lines, to share with them, to give them water, give them whatever they needed to be comfortable out there, and to give them some reading material as they stood there in line so they could hear more about Jesus as they were out there. And I specifically was working with the dental line. And on that first day, on Wednesday, I had walked through the line and I'd been assigned to count how many people were out there. And this was about 7 a.m. As I walked through the dental line, there was between 650 and 700 people standing there already by 7 a.m. waiting to get in the doors of the L.A. Convention Center. It was overwhelming. Especially overwhelming because that morning the power went off in the convention center for several hours on the dental side. The rest of the convention center was fine, but the dental side wasn't able to provide the services for this huge line of people. So by the end of the day, we had to send home some probably close to a thousand people that first day. Tell them, hey, you got to come back tomorrow morning. And some said, hey, we're not leaving. And they had camped out that night, so I knew I couldn't just stay in bed that morning. I had to go, I had to see how the people were doing in line. So I got there at 6 a.m. on Thursday morning, and I walked through the line and looked at the people who were standing there hoping that they could get dental care, because so many people have insurance for medical reasons and other things, but when it comes to dental care, they don't have what they need, and they don't have the thousands of dollars to pay for the services. I walked through that line. It was a crowd of people. I have a picture of one of the crowds of people. It was as far as you could see down this corridor, and then it would double back again, and then it would double back a third time, and sometime even a fourth time. But by the time I got there at 6 a.m. yesterday, we estimated that there was already, no, this was Thursday, there was already a thousand people standing there in line. As we walked through the line, I looked at the different people, I tried to smile, tried to say hi, good morning, 
It was just a mass of faces. You know how it is when you're in a crowd of people and you see these people and you don't know who they are. You don't know their situation. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know the pain that they're suffering. The day before, I remember when a lady came up to me. She crying. She was holding her mouth. She said, my, my mouth is hurting so bad. You've got to be able to get me in. You have to be able to get me in. I said, I'm sorry. I, it's first come, first serve. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't get you in. She had probably a thousand people in front of her in line. Sent her to medical, the medical services, hoping that maybe the doctor could do something, at least temporarily, and that she could come back the next day to dental. But here it was, 6 a.m. on Thursday. A thousand people there. And as I walked through that line, I didn't know their situations. I didn't know what they'd been going through. I didn't know who these individuals were. I didn't know their story. But one guy kind of looked at me and smiled, and it was different than the rest of them. Some of them wouldn't connect, make eye connection, and others wouldn't really say anything. But he just kind of smiled at me, and he looked at me. I thought, I want to go say hi. I want to find out about this guy. So I walked over, and I said, hi, how are you doing this morning? I said, I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. And he was there with his wife and began to talk to him to see how he was doing, see how he'd found out about this. I think they may have found out on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. They found out about it, a lot of people from the news. So I talked to him for a minute. I said, what are you hoping to have done today? He said, I don't know exactly, but something. As I looked at him, he looked fine to me. I'm not a dentist. He had this great smile, and I thought his, his teeth looked fine to me. But he said, I haven't been able to eat in two months. I can't even eat rice. I can't even eat soft things. It's not possible to to eat anything. My wife has been making me chicken soup and different broths that I've just been drinking. He later told me I've lost a ton of weight. I've been drinking smoothies. I've been trying to, to get by, but I can't eat solid food. He was in so much pain. Such a friendly guy. We talked about our lives. We just got to know him a little bit, and suddenly I began to care just a little bit more with him. You know, in the book Education, it talks about how acquaintance brings sympathy. So often we see and we hear about masses of people. We may see it on the news. We may even hear amazing testimonies. But if we don't know an individual, we don't know what they're going through, it doesn't really matter to us. But can you imagine how Jesus' heart feels? Jesus knows you. We read Zephaniah 3.17 at the beginning that his heart rejoices over you with singing. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows every step that you've taken. He knows the details of your life. He knows what you've gone through and he loves you infinitely. And he cares about every pain you've ever felt. It's like he felt it in his own heart. It's like it ripped his own heart apart. That's why... Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus was willing to, chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that he was willing to go to the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of being with you for eternity. You know, as I would walk through that long line of people, I would often just try to look for that guy and we'd reconnect during the day because it was like a little friendship was beginning to build and I especially cared about that guy. I wanted to see him get helped. I wanted to see them all get helped. I wanted to see if we could get everybody through that day. But I hoped at least he could get through. And I remember at one point he asked me, do you think 
we're going to be able to make it in. His wife said, yeah, do you think we can make it in? I need a little bit done, but he needs a lot. Do you think we can get him in there somehow? I said, I'm hopeful. The dentists are working. There's 40 to 60 dentists up there working their hearts out. There's hygienists up there, tons of dental assistants. If you could see the dental part of the convention center, it was half the convention center almost was taken up just by the dental facilities. They were working as hard as they could to provide services for these people. I told them they're doing their best up there. They want to see you. They want to help you. I was hopeful that he'd make it through. Well, it was early on that day when we began to get word, hey, before long we need the chaplains to go through line and start to let people know, hey, you might want to consider going to the medical line today, even the vision line, because it's not looking too hopeful for you to be able to make it into dentistry today. I think it was maybe 11, 11.30 when finally the director for the whole Pathway to Health program began to go from the front of the line and just to announce, hey, you've got to go to the medical services. They can do so much for you. And by this time, it was three thick. There was, the, the line went back and forth on itself at least three, maybe four times. A thousand people standing out there, and we knew the majority of them would not be helped that day. Though thousands were helped. Thousands came out so excited, so happy. We looked on that multitude of people just wishing that somehow we could help them all. And I just imagine that that's what was on the heart of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Go with me to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus, who had the power to lay His hands on somebody who was blind, to lay His hands on a leper, to lay His hands on somebody who was deaf, and immediately to pray for them and they would be healed. One chaplain said, I wish we could do that right now. Why? If we could just say, hey, there's one line over here if you want to see the dentist, or you could come up to the chaplains and they'll pray for you and you'll be healed. Wouldn't that be great? Wish we could have done that. I know God wants to do miraculous things this day and age, and we prayed for as many people as possible out there. But Matthew chapter 9, we'll start in actually verse 35. Matthew, that's Mark, we need to go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Jesus went among the people and he did everything possible to heal as many as came into contact with him. Sometimes in the Gospels it tells us that people were just trying to touch the hem of his robe and as many as touched him, they'd be healed on the spot. People would be pressing in around Jesus, trying to get healed, trying to get close to Jesus. Jesus was doing everything possible. And in fact, hold your finger here, but go back to, go forward to Mark chapter 3. Jesus was so diligent about this, he would work so hard to help as many as possible, to do everything possible, to help everyone he could, that sometimes there wasn't even time for he and his disciples to eat. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. They would press in around them. They were so busy that they didn't even have time to eat lunch. There were many chaplains who we were out there all day long, and many other people, I'm sure, working in dentistry and other parts inside, who we were just working so, just throughout the day, talking to people, mingling with people. You just didn't really have time for lunch. I imagine this might be what the disciples were facing as the multitude pressed around them. 
And it seems so crazy to the people who knew Jesus. Look at what they do in verse 21 and 22. But when his own people heard about this, they heard that the multitudes are so crowding them that they're not even eating, that they're just doing all this stuff for people. When they, his own hurt people heard, they went out to lay hold of them, for they said, he is out of his mind. So Jesus is crazy. What he is doing is too much. He's helping too many people. He's working too hard. He's going to kill himself. This isn't healthy. Jesus had that heart to reach as many as he could, to help as many as he could, to do whatever he could. So back in Matthew chapter 9, when it says that the multitudes were coming around him and he's healing as many as he could, look at verse 36. It starts with a sad word, but the multitudes are there and he's healing all of their sicknesses, all of their diseases, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. As Jesus looked out and he saw the multitudes, he realized that he couldn't possibly get to every individual. He couldn't possibly heal all of these multitudes. And his heart was moved with compassion. His heart broke for the masses of people, wishing that they could be touched, wishing that they could be taught, wishing that there were enough to help them all. And that's why he goes on in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I looked at these mass of people, and I realized that there were so many volunteers, so many from our own church that were volunteering at that clinic, and so many of you that have volunteered at other clinics, yet There is still a harvest out there. There is still a work to be done. And we need to be praying for laborers for the harvest. And that God would make us laborers for the harvest. Because what did the scripture reading say? John 15 and verse 13. Jesus told the disciples, he said, This is the commandment that I give to you. You're to love as I have loved you. That's what we're called to do. And that's what the Philadelphian church was actually commended for. Go to me, go with me to, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we pick up with the church of Philadelphia. Last week we talked about the church of Sardis, the church that thought that they were alive. They had a name that they were alive. They were Christians. They were following. They were faithful in name. But really... Jesus told them, you're dead. You need revival. You need new life. You're you're going through the motions. You have a form of godliness, but really you're denying the power. And this is what we saw in Christian history. As from the Reformation, we had this amazing movement where people were getting back to the Bible. They were getting back to faith. They were getting back to faithfully following Jesus. But something happened. Formalism took in. Church and state began to unite. And again, we had these churches who were just filled with forms, just filled with rituals who no longer had the power of Jesus, no longer were focused on faith in Jesus, no longer were allowing Jesus to actually transform their lives. So that church, we saw the prophetic time period, lasted from somewhere in the early 1500s up until about 1750, the second half of that 18th century, the 1700s. But now we pick up the church of Philadelphia, 
Revelation 3 and verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I wish that I'd had a key to open the door to that convention center just to keep it open so that everybody could go in. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Last week, we learned about a few faithful Christians. We had the Moravians who were going over as missionaries to America. And you remember the story. If you missed last week's sermon, it's on the website, the podcast. Uh, If you click on media, it's there. We learn the story of John Wesley. As John Wesley was going also to the United States and he was on that same boat with these Moravian Christians, these humble Christians who I've read they, as they were on the boat, they were doing the menial serving task that nobody else was willing to do. And as they're going across the sea, across the Atlantic, a huge storm comes and the boat's about to be wrecked and John Wesley was so impressed by their lack of fear, their faithfulness, their rest in Christ in the midst of that difficulty, that it led to his later conversion as he talked to a Moravian Christian as they shared with him from the works of Martin Luther about how Martin Luther had said righteousness or the just are just by faith, Romans 1.17. And he had experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and he had said, my heart is strangely warm." This was the end of that Sardis church, this small group of people who began to experience the power of the gospel, who really were experiencing the transformational value of following Jesus, not just going through a form, not just having a theology, not just debating about who's right about the Bible, but instead experiencing the power of God to actually change lives. But here it says, even in the Philadelphian church, which is now we're starting into the 1700s, they have a little strength. There was this little group of people. You had the Moravian Christians, and now you had John Wesley, who began to have this renewed and inspired experience with God. Even though he'd been a minister for years, now he had this renewed and enlightened experience with God through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He'd been given new life. You have a little strength. You have kept my word, Revelation 3 verse 8 continues, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who are following Satan, those who are captives to Satan's deceptions, those who are confused about the gospel, those who are confused about the character of God, I will make them. Verse 9 continues, those who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Revelation 3 is quoting here from Isaiah 60 and verse 14 where the prophecy was that all the nations would be gathered to Jerusalem that as Jerusalem was faithful to be an outreach center where they were reaching out to the world around them that all the nations of the world would come to Jerusalem, come to the temple and experience the prophetic symbols of the sanctuary that were pointing to Jesus. So here in Revelation, Jesus is quoting from that Old Testament prophecy, that thing that hadn't been fulfilled in 
Israel's history because they'd been unfaithful to God's promises. They hadn't been faithful to reach out to those around them. And here he says, hey, in this church, the church of Philadelphia, I'm going to begin to bring all nations to worship at my feet. If you go with me quickly, keep your finger in Revelation 3 to Psalm in chapter 86 and verse 9. This is actually promised that in the end, there will be a group of people before the throne of God on that sea of glass. There will be people from all nations worshiping God in heaven. Psalm 86 and verse 9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. You know, when you go into Los Angeles and you recognize that there is such a great harvest to be had, that there are so many people with needs, and you consider that that is a city of, what is it, three, four, four million people there in the L.A. basin, and you think about the world out there, seven billion people on this planet today, seven billion And how many of them have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that they can understand in their own language? You and I get to have the Bible in our own language, and it's translated to so many languages, and many of us have many Bibles on our shelf. We have it on our cell phone. We have the opportunity to hear the gospel, but there are so many people groups, so many dialects, so many languages which still haven't gotten a good picture of Jesus Christ. It's estimated if you go to a website like joshuaproject.net, the people groups that haven't yet been reached, which means less than 2% of them have received the gospel, the people groups who haven't been reached is probably in the thousands of people groups. And they've mapped them all out. They've listed them all. They estimate that there's over 3 billion in those people groups. And of those 3 billion, there's maybe a few million Christians. There's probably about 2.8 billion people on this planet today who have never had the chance of hearing the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. But you and I sit here today knowing that Jesus is the one who in Revelation 1 walks among the candlesticks. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who's going to finish the work. And he's looking out at this mass of people, this great harvest. And today I would say that Jesus' heart is again moved with compassion. He's again saying to you and I, will you pray and will you go? Will you pray for laborers and will you pray that God makes you a laborer and throws you out into the harvest? Because the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Jesus' heart is moved with compassion for the masses of people who need the love of Jesus Christ in their lives. Philadelphia. That name for this sixth church in Revelation chapter 3 from the Greek meaning brotherly love. It was the church where it was awakened this sense that we're talking about. This sense of the masses of people out there who were in such desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Wesley himself. He began to preach in a whole new way. He'd come back to England After his little foray in the United States, he came back to England, he met with a Moravian minister, found out the gospel in a more powerful way, received the Holy Spirit, and his heart, he said, I quote, was strangely warmed. 
and his ministry was forever changed. From that point, John Wesley preached like he'd never been able to preach before. Pretty soon, the churches were no longer able to contain the crowds who would come to hear John Wesley preach. And so, pretty soon, he was out in the fields just preaching to people. In fact, part of the reason that the crowds couldn't be held in churches was who these crowds were. They weren't the formal Christians, the well-put-together, the wealthy, the, the elite of Europe. Instead, they were the coal miners. They were the, the down-and-outers. They were the drunkards. They were the, the people who had been deceived by the enemy. They were the synagogue of Satan. They'd been following Satan and they'd been deceived. And John Wesley realized that Jesus had a message for them, that Jesus' heart broke for them, that Jesus had compassion for every one of them, that he knew what they'd gone through in their lives. He knew the number of hairs on their head. He knew the pain of their life. And he desperately wanted to help them. So John Wesley began to preach. And a great revival took place. His friend, uh, George Whitfield, began to preach. Thousands and thousands of people would again crowd out in fields to hear George Whitfield preach. No microphones, no sound system. And George Whitfield would preach the simple gospel and souls came to know Jesus. A great awakening took place during this time period of the Philadelphian church, that church of brotherly love, that church that was finally recognizing that Jesus has called us to love this world the way that he has loved it. There was a man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was born in 1764. William Carey grew up and picked up the trade that was a part of his family, and that was shoemaking. He was just a simple shoemaker. What could a simple shoemaker do to change the world? All he knew how to do was fix people's shoes, and there he was, day in and day out, in that shoe shop. Kind of reminds me of somebody back in the first century A.D., somebody who worked in a carpenter's shop for 30 years, somebody that his family said, why is he doing that? Why is he going out thinking that he can impact the world? All he is is a carpenter. What does he think he's doing? William Carey, as he was in the shoemaker's shop, his heart began to be burdened for the masses of people that needed to know Jesus, and he began to study other languages. He studied the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, took up the languages so that he could know the Bible better himself. And then in his, any time he had, any breaks he had, he began to learn the language of the cultures in India. He said, we've been called to go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Why aren't we going? Why aren't we going to India where there's billions of people that need to hear the gospel? I don't know if there were billions at that time, but today in India, there's over 2 billion people. And it's, there's a large portion, I mean, there's a good group in southern India who's Christian and who can evangelize. But in northern India, there's masses of different dialects and people groups who have never been reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ, never heard the simple story of Jesus that you and I hold dear. It was even worse back then, and as William Carey read about this, he began to study and he began to preach, and pretty soon he was a minister in the Baptist church. And as he was preaching, as he was ministering in the Baptist church, one time he was at a convention of Baptist leaders, and he, he stood up and he said, we've got to go, we've got to take the gospel to the world, we need to establish missionary societies. At this time, in the, seventh, in the 18th century, there was about 20 Protestant missions in the entire world. 20 in the entire world. 
And most of them were from those Moravian Christians who had gone out to the world. They knew they needed to be out there. So as William Carey stood up and he said this, one of the older leaders, a fellow Baptist minister, said this, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Let God do it. He'll take care of it. We don't need to go. We don't need to worry about the rest of the world. Later, William Carey wrote this, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. You know, I look back and I think, well, that's sad. Sad that they were just sitting and enjoying life. Sad that they were going on about their business while multitudes were needing the gospel. And then I wonder, is it different with me? Is it different with us? Is it different with the Templeton Hills Seventh-day Adventist Church? Are we concerned for the masses of people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I've seen it in a lot of your hearts. I've seen your heart for this world. I've seen you pray. I've seen you give. I've seen you minister your hearts out. But I can't help but wonder, are we loving this world the way that Jesus calls us to love this world? What was our scripture reading? John chapter 15 and verse 12. Jesus says something really challenging to the disciples. In Leviticus, they'd been told to love their neighbors as themselves. That was something that had been understood throughout Jewish history. That was common uh, understanding that that was one of the greatest laws, that you should love other people the same way that you love yourself. But Jesus comes and he clears the table and he makes an entirely new commandment out of this old commandment not doing away with the old but enhancing it making it more beautiful making it so much more meaningful because up until this point they hadn't really understand it understood the love of Jesus they hadn't really come to grasp how God loved people but now Jesus had walked among them they'd seen Jesus be moved with compassion as he saw the multitudes They'd seen as Jesus, when the disciples tried to hold back the little children from coming to him, he said, no, bring the kids. I want the kids to be close to me. They'd seen as those who were apparent sinners were forgiven by Jesus and told to go and sin no more. They'd seen as those who were apparently cursed with disease because of their sins. Jesus said, hey, this is for the glory of God and I'm going to heal them today. And they walked away, their skin whole their eyesight better, their ears hearing. So, the night before Jesus is going to the cross, Jesus says this to the disciples. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Not just love everybody else the way that you love yourself. Love one another the way that I have loved you. And then he goes on to expound on that. Verse 13, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. They didn't really understand at this point what this really meant, but before long, they would actually see what this looked like. As Jesus would go through the Garden of Gethsemane and take all of our sin, all of our shame, and allow it to be heaped 
on his shoulders. Allow it to crush his heart. Then he would pick up that cross and he would take it to the hill of Golgotha. He would do whatever it took to display his love so radically so that you and I could see the love of Jesus. We could see the love that God had for us. Not just so that we could look at it and be thankful and have a warm feeling in our hearts so that our hearts could be strangely warmed like John Wesley but so that our hearts could break with that same love, so that we could follow in Jesus' footsteps. Like Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 16, anyone that wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow after me. What was Jesus doing when he took up his cross? He was following. He wasn't following. He was doing whatever it took to save you and I, right? And he says for us to follow in those same footsteps. To do whatever it takes to save those around us. To lay down our own life, our own priorities, our own agenda. We talk about dying to self. Something so crucial that I am still coming to grasp it. And I think we have a long ways to go in grasping what this is like. But if we just say we've died to self and we don't live to save others, it's pointless. You see, Jesus laid down his life to do whatever it took to love the people around him. And he calls any of us who want to be his disciples to follow in those same footsteps. So this is what William Carey did. In the Review and Herald, May 3, 1887, it says, Carey, one of the greatest missionaries, was at one time a humble shoemaker. He felt deeply for a class that he saw were in darkness and knew not the Scriptures, He was obliged to work at his trade, but at the same time he had his dictionary before him, and as he worked, he diligently studied. He put his mind to the task with earnest prayer and procuring more books, did not cease until he had mastered three languages. He finally became a missionary to a foreign country and was very successful. William Carey's heart broke for the multitudes. John Wesley's heart broke for the multitudes. Others in this time period, George Mueller's heart broke for the orphans on the streets in England. And he, by faith, set up large orphanages. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk more about that as we keep looking at the church of Philadelphia over the coming weeks. In the book, The Desire of Ages, page 641, it says this, When we love the world as He loved it, like that commandment that Jesus has given us. When we love it, then for us, His mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Let me tell you, it's a sweet thing to get to love this world in just a small way, like Jesus loved this world. It's such an incredible privilege to have the opportunity to offer people help in a practical way that they have not experienced before. I just want to invite Leah, my wife, to come up just briefly and share some stories of what she saw or what she heard at Pathways to Health. You know, it was an incredible thing. I wasn't working directly with patient care, but my job um, was scanning people's charts. And so as I would scan the charts, I was able to see just how many people were coming through. And it wasn't until... Last night that we heard the total number that 8,500 people had been seen in two and a half days. 8,500 people. And it was amazing as I would walk 
See, my job didn't pick up until the afternoon because I wouldn't get the chart until everyone had had all their services. And so in the morning with the free time, we'd often walk around and see what everyone was doing. And to see 4,000 volunteers there just giving their time and giving their energy, giving their resources. They interviewed some girls a couple nights ago that had heard about Pathway to Health at the GC session this summer and had flown all the way from Australia to share for two and a half days. And it wasn't that they were even doctors or nurses. Some of them just came to help with registration, but they had flew thousands of miles around the world just to come. There were little kids yesterday in my department. Um, one of the doctors came by who had a radio, and about every 20 seconds, it was amazing, they were calling for translators for some language. We need a Thai translator and mammogram. 20 seconds later, we need a Spanish translator in dental. We need a Japanese translator at registration. These people were running. And so we heard, we need a Spanish translator in records. And that was where I was working. So in about 10 minutes, this little 11-year-old boy, maybe 11, 12 years old, came. How can I help you? And he started translating. And so to see from the little kids up to a 92-year-old woman who was working in lifestyle, doing lifestyle counseling. She does vegan cooking schools in her home, 92 years old there, counseling with people, praying with them, working with them. It was amazing. But there were so many stories. I was um, listening last night to the program because we came home so we could be here today, but I was listening to the program online last night. And they were saying that there was a guy who was from Thailand, who's lived in the States for 40 years, who had never had someone offer to pray with him until he came to Pathways to Health. And over and over, the testimonies from people were that we have never had so many people pray for us. People have prayed for me 10 times since I've been here. They said, I've never had a doctor just offer to pray with me, much less before my procedure and after. And then they would say, as I left, then the counselor prayed with me. Then I got to chaplaincy, and then they'd pray for me. And then when I got to the exit line, they'd pray for me. And over and over and over, people were just having amazing experiences. This girl showed up just to be with her sister. Her sister had come for some type of procedure. And when she got there to triage, they said, you should tell her about your thing too. And she's like, I don't know if I should. And she said, okay, well, I have something on my back. She said, I've been to the hospital a bunch of times for it. It's super uncomfortable. She said, but they told me there's nothing they can do. It's some kind of mass. I just, you know, don't need to worry about it, but it really hurts. And so the girl said, no, we can help you with that. And she said, really? They got her back into surgery that day and had a huge softball-sized lipoma taken out of her back. There was another guy last night who shared his testimony up front. He had huge bandages on his ears. And when he came up, he said, I didn't even know they could do this. He said, but I had these huge keloids growing behind my ears. He said, people have made fun of me for years. And he said, my girlfriend came yesterday and got medical help. They had done a whole workup on her. And she wanted to come back again today for eye care to get glasses. He said, with what we would pay, it'd be at least $300. And it usually comes between rent or glasses. She said, she's put it off for years. But when she came to get her glasses today, I also signed up. They took me to plastic surgery. He said, and they were able to remove those. He said, it's been years that people have made fun of me, years that people looked at me funny, and over and over and over. There was another guy who came in with a major problem, and it was amazing because it wasn't just the 4,000 volunteers that were there, but Glendale Medical Center, Simi Valley, Loma Linda, all these places had opened up operatories at the hospital for surgery too. And so as soon as someone would come in that had a major surgery, they would just whisk them away in a bus. They would take them for surgery. If they needed a motel for the night so they could be checked on in the morning, they would do it. So this guy came in, needed major surgery. Urologist checked him out, and he said he, he needs surgery today. He, he needs surgery today. He has an eight-centimeter mass. And so they called in. They got a room for him within an hour at the hospital. We're getting him um, all scheduled, everything working. And the lady coordinating surgeries called the doctor who was at the hospital, said, can we get him in today? And he said, I'd love to help. He said, but I just, 
I don't know. I don't really feel comfortable with it. I didn't check this guy out, and you're just wanting me to come into surgery and just cut him open, take away this mass. I just don't know if I can do it. And she said, well, at least think about it. This is the situation. This is the case. She gave him all the details. Just think about it. So she got off the phone, and she said she was just pacing. Her heart was breaking. Here was this guy. She thought it was probably cancer for sure. He's 24 years old. And so she said to the doctor who had checked him out, she said, I just hope, I just hope that this doctor will do it. And she said the name of the doctor. And he said, who? And she said it again. He said, I was in residency with him six years ago. Let me talk to him. So he called him up and he said, you have got to see this person. I'm the one that did the assessment. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. And in hours they had that guy in surgery. Sure enough, they take out the mass. It was cancer, but it had not spread. He was recovering. They showed a picture of him healing in the operating room and in his recovery room just a few hours later. But over and over and over and over, there were just little miracles happening. You know, dental is probably the biggest, biggest need, which is why I'm so excited about our clinic coming up in June. I mean, to see these people, thousands lined up, thousands of them, and we can help, you know, a few hundred each day. But to see the thousands of people lined up, you really saw the great controversy at work because everywhere else is working. There's physical therapy going on. There's translating going on. There's, you know, all these medical doctors at work and like hundreds of nurses. They wanted to see 500 patients go through triage in 10 minutes. That's the kind of numbers we're talking about. And so, I mean, there's people everywhere working, working, working from seven o'clock in the morning. And at eight o'clock, dental still not able to work. Nine o'clock, dental still not able to work because the workers that had been there had been suspended from their job. There's a lot of politics going on, not with our organization, but with the convention center. And so these guys that had signed up just to be runners, to run people's charts back and forth, to be assistants, however they needed it, are running to Home Depot themselves, bringing back drills, drilling in PVC pipe to have plumbing for dental. And I mean, it was hours that they were just scurrying around and all these people are waiting, but it was amazing. The dental situation, I don't understand how it all works, but I know you have to at least have suction and a lot of air pressure for what they do. And their system would literally blow up just in minutes. They would be working, working, finally got patients back there, started working on, it would blow up. You would just hear this huge blow. These guys who were not plumbers, who don't do this for a job, would rush to the site, would get it fixed, get it banded back up, and they would start again. And in a few minutes, it would blow again, and these guys would be back on the floor with their drills, fixing it over and over and over. After the first day, I asked my mom, how many times did that thing blow up? She said, at least 25. But these guys were there, and they saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. And hopefully when you finish, you'll, he's going to tell the rest of his story, because this is amazing. But it was incredible to me. You know, Zach came to me on Thursday. I was scanning charts. And so just scanning and scanning away. And he sent a text and he said, please pray. He said, I have to go out there to that dental line to tell them that they can't be seen today. There's just no possible way. And um, we did. We prayed because it's so sad. But then he texted me. He said, I just have to find food for these people. He said, some of them are going to spend the night. And we're not talking about five o'clock. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. They're going to spend all day and all night just to be seen tomorrow. And so we had already eaten our lunch, but I thought, well, maybe we can just scrounge around. At that point, you wish you wouldn't have eaten for the last three days and saved your food, but we didn't know. And so we went around just trying to find bags of popcorn here and there from people's lunches or extra orange or, oh, you're not going to eat that apple or whatever. And we started making this box. And by this time, I was, um, my tear ducts were working well. And so 
I didn't want to go out there with Zach. He said, do you want to come meet all my friends outside? And I told him that was probably not a good idea because I was crying. But anyway, he went out there with this box and just would walk down the line and offer these people food. And at the end of the day, he said, you have to come meet my friends. He said, these people are so sweet. I've been here with them all day, bringing him water and bringing him food and making friends. And I was a little hesitant, but I went out there and I mean, I expect people, I mean, these people have been waiting for hours. I expect them to be upset. I expect them to be frustrated. They were the sweetest people. Zach said, come and meet my friends. He said, this is my wife and different ones are standing up. I want to shake your hand. Oh, I've heard all about you. Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, you're so nice. And uh, I mean, the sweetest people and they waited and they waited and they waited. And it was such a joy for me because the next morning we got back and you know, you feel so guilty. You go to sleep in your hotel and they serve you breakfast and all these things. But we came back the next morning, and before I rushed off to my station, I went to check. And those people were standing in line, just about to get in. And when we left yesterday, the lady that was in the first, first person in line, who had waited all night, I saw her right before we left. And I said, how was it? She said, it was wonderful. It was so wonderful. She said, look at my teeth. They're clean. And she had waited all night for dental hygiene. All night. And maybe because my mom's a hygienist and she's always honest to get our teeth cleaned every six months, but I thought someone would wait all night to get their teeth cleaned. My mom said she had a 17-year-old who had more tartar than she'd ever seen in her entire life. She said chunks were just flying off. I mean, these people are in such great need, and it just broke my heart. Broke my heart to see that there's a world out here. We don't have to go to Africa or a third-world country to see there are people right here in our community who need so much work. I mean, there were people who needed four teeth pulled, three teeth pulled, all kinds of fillings they couldn't even do. But over and over and over, as people would leave, they said, I've never seen people like this. I always see religious people who are preaching at people, but I've never seen an organization like this who would actually help people. I've never seen an organization like this that would serve people like this. I've been prayed for 10 times today. I've never been loved like this before. It was amazing. One of the guys that she mentioned early on, the guy who had the keloids removed from his ears, as he was sharing the testimony, his wife, I think she was in tears, I didn't actually get to watch it, but um, he said, you know, I've never been a religious person, never really believed in God, because all along I've just seen people that preached at me, people who just wanted to, to throw stuff at me, nobody really cared about me, nobody cared about what I was going through. But today, something's different. Somebody actually met my needs. Somebody actually cared for what was going on in my life. And his wife, there, they had him on the stage last night, was just saying, you know, for, what was it, 10, ten years? So she can finish it because she knows the story. Moving. She, uh, it, was, it was actually his girlfriend there, and she said, you know, he's never been a religious person because of these reasons. She said, but I have. She said, but today, after so many people had reached out to him, so many people had prayed for him, she said, he actually prayed for me, and we actually prayed together. And then to the whole group of people that were sitting there, she said, I want you to know that you guys have done more for me and more for him and more for our relationship in the last 36 hours than we've been able to accomplish in the last three years of being together. And that, to me, makes it totally worth it. This is my commandment, that you love one another
not the way you love yourself, but as I have loved you. And Jesus, when he looked on the multitudes, his heart was moved with compassion. So often I pass by multitudes of people. I don't care because I don't know them. I haven't seen what they're going through. I haven't entered into a relationship with them. I don't know the details of their life, but Jesus knows the detail of every single person's life. He knows the number of hairs on their head. He knows what they're going through. In the book, Education, says this about the cross. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. Our world is a vast laser house. You think about just Los Angeles has this much need. How much greater that entire world out there. Our world is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is? The burden would be too terrible. When you wake up in the morning, have you ever thought to ask God, how's your day going? How are you today, Jesus? And I imagine that he's filled with a lot of joy from the children who are worshiping him. And I'm filled with joy from all the people praying with him. But can you imagine the heartbreak on God's heart every day? His children are starving to death. His children are suffering abuse. His moms and dads can't afford to pay for their families to have food. His simple vaccinations could be given in other countries and people could live a normal life. As people in our own country can't afford to take care of a toothache that has kept them from eating. For two months. We don't know the details of their life, so we don't really care that much. But when I walked down a line of people and I actually saw a person and got to know that person, got to know him by name, got to know his wife by name, got to learn that day in and day out she fixes him soup broth so that he could have enough energy to live, knowing that he hasn't had solid food in two months. And then at the end of the day, as I'm letting people know that they should probably go to medical services where they can see a doctor and they can have all kinds of opportunities for care, but dentistry is just not going to work out for them today. As the line gets smaller and smaller, and finally there's about 40 people who refuse to move. They're still lined up there in front of that door for dentistry at the convention center. And it's, mind you, 11.30 in the morning. It's almost lunchtime. They're lined up there and they begin to get out chairs they begin to set up camp. They're staying there. They know that it won't be until 7 o'clock the next morning that that door opens again. But 40 people are already saying, we're spending the night right here because we need help and we can't leave. I would be telling people, hey, if you want help tomorrow morning, you've got to get here. 2, 3 a.m., their eyes would get huge. Are you serious? I'm serious. And sadly, the last morning... He came, got up early again, went with my father-in-law early to the lines, and as we walked in the convention center, I immediately went to the dental line to see how my friends had been. The day before, we talked to them as we left and said, wish we could do something more for you. I'm so sorry that you have to spend the night here on the street. I wish, wish I had something more for you. And they said, it's okay, we're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. 
But how do you go back to your hotel and sleep knowing that people are there on the street? Something's not right with that picture. We went back that morning, 6 a.m., walked down the line of people, and there's a thousand people standing there in line at 6 a.m. again, not knowing that the majority of them are not going to be able to get in because from the day before, there were all the people who would come back with wristbands, who had been all the way inside, and who wouldn't get the chance to be helped, who wouldn't get the chance to see a dentist that day, so they got first priority the next day. That line was building up next to the other line of 1,000 people, and that was a line of 200 to 300 people. They got to go right in and immediately pass. They'd already gone through triage, so they got to go straight to dentistry and get started for the day. And it took another hour probably before finally they're saying, well, we can accept a few people in. And my friend's sitting there with his wife, and there's 10 people in front of him before the door. He's been up all night long. He and his wife there and my other friends there, they're not sure they're going to get in. Even though they've been there all night, they know that they still might not get helped. They still might not have the opportunity to see a dentist. Finally, the director for dentistry comes down and, okay, we can take 15 for teeth cleaning. We can take 15 more for extractions. Little by little, some groups get to go in. And finally, my friends who were there who had been waiting all night, most of them got to go in. Finally, we had to close down the line that day, send them over to medical. Actually, we turned the line into a medical line Just said, hey, everybody come in, see the doctor, get a massage, hydrotherapy, do something. There's so much in here, so much opportunity that you won't get anywhere else, nutritional counseling, something that will help you, blood testing, come in. So most of them did come in. And I, I can tell you, the second day I saw somebody who had been there early and waited all day long and hadn't gotten to get into dentistry but went into medical. And as she was coming through the exit line, I happened to bump into her. She said, hey, do you remember me from the line? I said, yeah. She said, I didn't get to go to dentistry today. But it doesn't matter. I've had such a wonderful day. I've had three different people who've prayed with me. They helped me with this and they helped me with that. And it's been amazing. And yeah, I still need the dentistry work, but it's been so wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Just to see a few people help like that is worth it all. But before long on Friday, I got word that we were actually going to be closing inside. That meant people who had gone through triage. Once you got in the building, you thought you had the golden card that you were for sure going to see a dentist. Let alone once you got through triage, you would finally be able to see the dentist. But we were told as chaplains, hey, we'd like you to come to the seating area inside of dentistry, where they've already divided them up. They're waiting in their area for a root canal, for distractions, for cleaning. Can you imagine being that guy, knowing that you're the next one, they're going to come out of there, you're pretty sure before long, and you'll finally get that toothache taken care of. You're sitting there, and here the dental director has to walk up, and we're there as chaplains just trying to talk to people, befriend people before they get the news. She walks up, and she has to tell them, I'm sorry, we can get you over to medical, we can get you into other things, a massage or something before you leave, but... For today, only those who are in dental chairs currently are going to get seen. My heart broke for these people. These people who are hurting, who needed help, and who couldn't 
get help. 3,000 people, I think, went through dentistry and did get help. An amazing opportunity, an amazing chance. And yet you can understand the heart of Jesus that though he was able to heal everybody around him, though he helped so many people out, his heart was still moved with compassion because he saw that there's a world out there that's hurting and that needs the gospel. At that point, I thought, what happened to my friends? Did they get turned away? Were they part of this massive group of people waiting here and they'd gone all the way, they'd waited all night long, they'd waited some 36 hours and yet they weren't going to get seen? It was about time to, to leave. So Lee and I walked in to say goodbye to her mom who's a hygienist and she was cleaning up her area there around her, her chair. And all of a sudden, I looked across the row. And there I saw a familiar face. There was a girl sitting there at the feet of a guy who was being worked on by two dentists. And he was screaming in pain. You see, he had such terrible infections in his mouth that the anesthesia was not capable of numbing the pain. So they're there. They're pulling teeth out. There are teeth sitting there on the tray. And he's screaming in agony. But it was my friend. He'd made it to the dentist. My friend was going to eat again. My friend had a new chance, a new lease on life. As I saw him there, I said, you know, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. The days of 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. being here, working hard just to see at least one get the opportunity for a new lease on life. That has to be how Jesus feels too. This young guy, in fact, when the dental director was coming around and thanking different dentists, as he went to thank the two dentists who were with him, and they gave him another break, because I guess they worked on him for about two hours, his mouth was so bad. They gave him a break so that he could sit up, his, he, he has tears streaming down his face, and the dental director is thanking the two dentists, and he says, I just want to let you know, these guys are saving my life. Just one life. It's worth so much when you know that one life. But when we ignore, when we forget about, when we aren't paying attention to the rest of the world out there, suddenly our hearts can become hard and we don't really care anymore. Oh, that I would have the heart of Jesus. Oh, that I would recognize this vast world out there filled with misery. And He's calling me not to just live my life as usual. Not to just go about business as usual. Yes, I may be a shoemaker. Yes, I may go about a task day in and day out. But could it be that I could be studying during that time? Could it be that I could be working during that time? Learning how I could possibly share the gospel with somebody else? Could it be that I could volunteer on June 12 for a clinic right here in Templeton Hills? Could it be that there are opportunities for me to love my neighbors, for me to love the people around me, that person down the street who I find annoying, who parks their car in the wrong place, who doesn't mow their lawn? Maybe they need my help. Maybe they need me to actually care about their life. Maybe they need me to love them the way that Jesus would love them. There's a vast world out there. and God feels it all. In order to destroy sin, that sin which is so painful to the hearts of humanity, He sent His best beloved. And He has put it in our power, the quote continues from education, through cooperation with Him 
to bring this scene of misery to an end. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Friends, I can't go about life anymore just planning for retirement, just planning for a next vacation. We can't go on like business as usual when there's a world out there in need of Jesus and His love. Knowing that the majority of the world lives on less than $2 a day, how can I just go about my life as if everything was okay? Jesus' heart breaks. And as a best friend of mine, I want for my heart to break with Jesus' heart. I want to love the world the way that He loved it. I want to take up my cross to say, Jesus, I lay down my life In your strength, I'm going to allow you to take away my priorities, my agenda, and I just want to live for your will, and your will is to love this world to Jesus. If that's the desire of your heart, I just want to invite you to kneel with me, if you're you're able, if you're not, God sees. And as we kneel in prayer, just to offer up the cry of your heart and maybe to make a specific commitment to God. Maybe it's a commitment this morning to give. To give to His cause in more ways than you've given before. Maybe it's a commitment today to pray. To pray for laborers, for the harvest truly is great. Maybe it's a commitment this morning that you want to make to go. To go and to help in ministry in every way possible. Jesus calls us to all these commitments. And so I invite you to make specific commitments in your own heart, in the silence of your own heart, to Jesus in this prayer time. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer, just lifting up our hearts. I know my own heart is recognizing that I don't want to go about business as usual anymore. You've put it in our power to put an end to this scene of misery. and We want to love this world like you've loved it. We want this gospel to be preached to the billions out there who need the saving knowledge. And we don't just want to preach at them, but we want to love them. We want to show them the love of Jesus in practical ways and then share them with them about your love. Oh, Father, hear the prayer of our hearts at this time. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving each person in this building with such infinite love. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to share your love with this world. Please, pour out your Holy Spirit on us like never before. Pour out that Spirit which will fill our hearts to overflowing with love so that people can see Jesus in us. It's time to go home. And we're longing for you to pour out your Holy Spirit. Please seal these commitments that we've made today. Teach us how to give more completely, how to love this world as you have loved it, so that your mission in our hearts can be complete, because heaven has come to our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.